Like Pogs, Ska, and AOL, Blockbuster Video is long gone. Unlike those things, we still have fond memories of Blockbuster. And on the Talkbuster podcast, host Chris Shipman helps us relive those bygone days. Every episode, Chris Shipman and a guest remember their times at the Blue and Gold and share stories of their time there, giving you a rare insight into your neighborhood video rental store. Find it on your favorite podcasting site today. and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always... The Shield brother, Axel Wright. How goes it, man? Uh, miserable. <laughs> so, let's move on. How goes it with you? Oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Alright, well, why don't we talk about something positive, as in the Illustrious Legion, as I believe you call yes, them. Yes, the Illustrious Legion, a.k.a. our patrons, a.k.a. the only reason we can still do this... Because seriously, without them, this doesn't this doesn't work. None of this works. I'll throw in a few more AKs. <laughs> <laughs> they go. They are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kenny Seth Decker, Jesse Johnson, Donald Lucy, and Nathan Willis. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion and make sure we don't go anywhere for a long, long time, head on over to Patreon.com for slash geeks with shields a dollar do- pledge means 25 cents an episode that's really a great deal plus it goes a long way towards making sure we can produce this podcast week to week and i'm going to apologize to anyone listening if i sound off especially if you've been listening to these in order as i do when i listen to my podcast because for reasons that are my i currently do not have my microphone or my headset i uh, have i'm set up in in my girlfriend's bedroom currently i'm not even in my normal recording area and i'm on wi-fi instead of connected by cord so i'm doing my best but (laughs) just be aware way to offer a peek behind the curtain yeah well sorry that my house my i currently don't have a bathroom and i've just been going back and forth on like a 30 minute drive to my house to to work and to the girlfriend's place and just stuff happened and i forgot my laptop at the one place so that i had i just i ran out of time okay <laughs> if you're keeping track at home yes axel's domicile is cursed a little bit apparently yeah i for the record when i say i don't have a bathroom i mean the sink and the bathtub have been ripped out entirely because of uh, it flooded <laughs> so i the mitigation is done the construct, the repair should be starting hopefully the next couple of days. But uh, anyway, cursed. <laughs> so I don't know. I have see this written down. I don't know which one of us was doing it. But before we get into our topic, we actually have a kind of an announcement thing. To call it. A- I think technically it's an announcement because we haven't recorded an episode discussing this yet. Yeah. And so I'm just gonna go ahead. We have become part of something called the Fireside Alliance. Uh, our, our buddy Chris is, like helped create it, um, and he brought us into it. And it's a podcasting coalition that includes other podcasts like the Film Rescue Podcast and the Chipman Brothers Tangent, uh, a bunch of other ones actually. We've actually been, you know, kind of behind the curtain chatting with them a bit, it, you know, just for funsies. We're in like a Discord kind of thing, and uh, there's a site up where you can see us and all the other people, and we want our communities to. You know, to blend and talk to each other. These are all, you know, good people. It seems like. <laughs> so here we are announcing it. I don't know. You want to say anything else about it? 
No, that's pretty much it. We're probably going to get a bit better as we continue to announce this every episode. But basically, it enables you to get a ton of podcasts with only one click. And I know, for me personally, I like only having to go one place for my podcasts. Yeah, so in case in case uh, it didn't come through clearly, again, it's called the Fireside Alliance. The name, if I remember correctly, comes from the idea of sitting around the fireside and telling stories. All right. So with that out of the way, we're going to jump right into this week's episode and more general bookkeeping. So if you've read the title of the episode, which I don't know how you would click on this randomly. Maybe it came up in your feed. I don't know how this works. Uh, you've seen that this is 10 Reasons Historical Films Suck. Now, very clear. I had no input in these 10 reasons. So let's see how this goes. This. OK. First point of note. Yes, we did do a buckler about this. It proved popular. So we decided, hey, let's try this. Point the second. In the first one, I talked a lot about warfare being represented in in historical films. Going to be a little bit of that here because that is my field of study. That is my specialty. Third point. Real, real quick, sub-point to that. We talked about it before, but in case you've missed it, Ulrich actually went to school for history, and particularly history of war. So it's... It thought like I consider myself an amateur historian. I mostly just I love history podcasts and history shows and stuff like that. But DC, but Ulrich actually studied this stuff. Yes, I am not a historian. Please, please, please do not make that distinction. I did not call <laughs> you a historian. I just said I you know. Um, it, so. I, I studied it. I went to school. That I'm unfortunately I I pursued a certain venue, which was namely warfare. Third point. Yeah, I, that I, is I, I majority. Was very careful. Of, Sorry, I was very careful not to call you historian for that exact reason. <laughs> third point. The reason I'm talking a lot about warfare is because those are the movies that get made. Yes, there are some period dramas, but most of them involve historical wars, battles, events, so on and so forth. Last point. I asked you guys. I did a poll. Said, "Hey, these are the historical topics we're considering covering. Which would you like to see?" This was the one you all voted on. If you want to yell at anyone for this episode, yell at yourselves. All right. So before we get into the, the list, which I have in front of me, Ulrich, how did you make this list? Was this just based off what of your own, or did you go like looking what other people had to say or something? This is my own personal list that I, I, I struggled for a while to get 10. Like, I have five things that I can say as a, person, a history person and a movie person. Like, these are the five things that typically bug me and why they don't work. So I really I had to do some thinking. I went and I watched other people's lists of these are, you know, 10 great historical movies. And I went and went, OK, that's a good one. But here's the problems I have with that one from a historical point of view. And that's another problem with a historical point of view. Uh, I watched a lot of History Buffs, which is a great YouTube series that kind of breaks down historical movies mm -hmm. and compares them to the real history. And I took a lot of similar points there. But this is mostly my list. And the things that these are 10 issues I see come up again and again and again. Now, based on – yeah, and based on looking at it, it doesn't look like we're – it's not like we're counting down. I'm going to start us at 10 just because, but – I did not, try and rank them in importance. Okay, so with one being the most important? Yes. Okay, then we're definitely going to start at 10. So – and again, I, I'm a big fan of – I'm actually more a fan of, like, history stuff than history movies. So the my real pony in this race, I guess, is that I think history is fascinating. And uh, one thing that I don't see on this list, so I'm going to put up forward real quick, real quick, 
real quick. I feel like something about I'm saying that is wrong. I've been listening to a lot of the dollop, which is you know American history, but it's specifically American history that people don't tend to know about. And so for me, one of the big reasons that you don't or that isn't mentioned here is that a lot of the best stories are not getting adapted. Period. Like there is a lot of cool history that no one is trying to turn into movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely a factor. And I don't know. I think point two, I will kind of touch on that. I, I will make little references to that throughout this whole thing because, like I've said many times, I want a a Hollywood triple A Admiral Yi movie. Like, yeah. He's he's the he's possibly the greatest admiral we've had in military history, and all his movies are Korean, which there's nothing wrong with that. Some some great Korean movies, but I want to see like a big, you know, big budget Admiral Yi movie so that you can teach the West about him because you should people in the West should know about him. So anyway, no, that's <laughs> another great point. We are like I'm going to reference certain movies throughout, and I hope Axel will throw some in as well. We're mostly going to be focused on big American Hollywood blockbusters because we are Americans. Those are the ones we're exposed most to. Yeah, and again, they're the ones that get the widest, at least in our area, they get the widest like recognition. Like That's why I'm saying I know that just from my research that there are good Admiral Yee movies, but the fact that they are foreign films – is the reason why a lot of Westerners don't know who Admiral Yi is. You made a you make a really good movie about him, and suddenly you're gonna have people, you know, even if they don't know all the right stuff, they'll you'll get that name recognition, you know. That so, is the other thing is a lot of people, their only knowledge of history comes from these movies, and oh boy, that's his own thing. But yeah, anyway, so number ten, yeah, number ten that Ulrich has listed down here is pacing. Now before I let Ulrich explain. I feel like off the bat, this comes from the fact that history isn't uh, history isn't a story. I mean, you can make stories out of history as historians are wont to do, especially older historians. I feel like modern historians, from my understanding, have stepped away from this habit. But like, real life doesn't fit neatly into narrative structure. So generally speaking, if you're making a historical film, especially one that tries to skew closer to history, you're either going to have something that feels probably awkward because you're having to work around the lack of a structure or you have to enforce a structure onto it, which can feel, well, forced. That would yeah. be my guess at what you mean. So. No, that's a big part, and interestingly enough, it's it's 50-50, because we found people do learn things better if it's told narratively kind of in a story, because that's just how our brains like to process information. Where this becomes an issue when you're trying to do historical events is a lot of times these are big, decade-spanning events, and a lot of times these movies will try and condense them or skip around or find a, okay, this is our first opening act, this is our middle act, this is our conclusion. And what that does, and my favorite example of this is, <clears throat> I think it was Warrior King, which was the Edward the Bruce story with uh, Chris Pine on Netflix, was a great movie, but it condensed his entire history to two hours, which if you know anything about the Scottish War for Rebellion, it doesn't really fit there. So you have this first big battle, and you're like, okay, and now it goes on to – and then it cuts to black and go, this is what he did afterwards. I will say that one thing about that – when I think about like a good 
epic, right? One that spans years. This is not a historical movie. I'm not making any claim this is a historical movie, but like think about how Captain America the First Avenger did it and how the first act is like getting Captain America to the state where he can it probably takes place over the course of a few months and then you've got a really good like second act that's basically like there's probably like two or three years that take place over this span of time. So but that's not that case it gets away with it because you don't need to really care about the details of the war. You're just caring about the details of the character and what's going on. So I feel like in a character centric piece you can get away with that easier. But so when an actual historical thing this this comes down to straight up like you know the idea of when you have to adapt a book you have to make a lot of cuts and that's a big pro- problem and people know this for a long time. Well, in history, you have to make more cuts usually because history is bigger than a book. So. Yeah, which is why they tend to focus on battles. Battles, it's a singular event. It took place in a set time. You can have a buildup and an end and a resolution. But what happens is well, and another example I'm going to use a lot is The Patriot. I don't know if you remember that movie at all. I watched it once when I was too young to really understand it. So. Okay, so here's my example of the movie starts with the American Revolution beginning and it ends with the war ending. How long did the American Revolution last? Uh, seven. I think it's at least three, four years. Let me double check. Sorry, folks. American Revolution is one of my weak spots. Yeah, I will say another reason while you're looking it up, another reason why they tend to be battles, though, is because for a long time, historians were very war-centric. And I understand why. Wars have a big impact on society. Wars also are very easy... Okay, I'm not disparaging war historians. The job is very... It's got its own, like, you know, respect and skill, and I couldn't... I'm not capable of doing it right now. But I recognize that, based on my study of history, that chronicling wars is comparatively easy compared to other things in history you chronicle because wars have usually defined starts they have very specific named players that you can uh position around they have a defined end the battles are defined points in essentially a narrative we said i talked about how history doesn't really have a narrative well war almost feels like it has a narrative in hindsight more so than a lot of like you look at something like the Industrial Revolution, which is probably the most important thing to happen in human history, honestly. And it doesn't have the same kind of start, end, players, easy kind of trackable thing that that wars and battle-centric history have. Again, I feel like modern historians are getting away from war-centric history, but that is how a lot of histor- historians over time have you know, focused. Does that make sense? Well, it's the war. When we talk about it, it's so when we go back and we retell stories of and have build monuments to and do the whole thing. No one wants to talk about Grog and his amazing pots, even though that was a big event. They do want to talk about Krog and his amazing club because that redefined borders in a more tangible sense. And I looked it up. The American Revolution was from April 19th, 1775 to September 3rd, 1780. It was not a short war. It's never a good idea to try and take these big, massive events and ram them in to short movies and even when you take battles it kind of it can run into similar issues rushing through things to get to the big thing if that makes any sense ironically there's an inverse of it an inverse of it an inverse where instead of you know trying to condense too much into too short a time you take too little and you stretch it out to the point of it becomes a boring slog to sit through well that especially happens when you try to 
I feel like one of the worst things that historical movies can do is take a movie filled with otherwise very interesting characters and start filling it with characters that are completely fabricated. <laughs> and I don't know how to put it more than like it creates a situation. I know this isn't that far back, but look at the that Bruce Lee movie that came out a couple years back. Bruce Lee is one of the most he was a movie star. He was extremely charismatic. He was like one of the most interesting modern fit existed period. Why did the creators decide to create a brand new like character whose oh, job yeah, that to, one. You know, whose job is to be the POV and the one that we're actually following who's just like observing Bruce Lee's life. Why? What does that help with? So why not just make Bruce Lee the star of your Bruce Lee movie? <laughs> so, anyway, this happens uh, in a lot of weird places. Like, anyway, we can talk about pacing, I think, enough, though, because we got we got nine more to go through, and we've already been talking about this for, like, 13 or 14 minutes or something. So, let's go to uh, number nine, which is the inclusion of 21st century ideas. And if I were to take a guess, I mean, that feels pretty obvious, but it's the idea of taking – historical setting or historical story and treating it based on modern sensibilities now i will argue i feel like there are cases where this actually is a good thing because it's a way to get the audience to better understand something historical by framing it in a context that makes more sense to them the big example i like is i actually don't remember what the movie is called i don't know if it was just called uh like Antoinette or something, but the Marie Antoinette movie with oh, uh, yeah. with Kirsten Stewart, uh, I believe, as Marie Antoinette that's filled with like... Uh, Dunst. Wrong, stu- uh, wrong Dunst, Kirsten. Sorry. Dunst, yeah. Uh, Kirsten Dunst as Marie Antoinette filled with 90s sugar pop, but it's like, yeah, nothing with that movie is really period accurate, but I feel like it really accurately gets you in the mindset of like, this is co- this is how the French aristocracy, in particular Marie Antoinette, could have been. And and especially you see – because, like, it was both trying to humanize her but also trying to give you, like, hey, if you're really dirt poor and you see someone living like this, wouldn't you be pissed off? So That is its own thing, which I have mixed feelings. On the one hand, it's mostly harmless because it is such an absurdist take – that no one's going to think, okay, this is meant to be interpreted as real. And it gets people learning. On the other hand, it still just kind of grates against my historical sense. But it's like, no, 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 that's not right. I've talked about it at length when I talk about A Knight's Tale. It's like, I I don't like that. I get what you're doing, but it doesn't work for me. I do feel like, and we talked about this before, in my personal case, I feel like you need to pick a side. Either go with, it's a story first, and history is far second, in which case you'd make narrative and stylistic decisions, and there's no real chance that a reasonable viewer is going to think this is historical, which is where Night's Tale fits into me. Like, Night's Tale is a goofy story that happens to be set in medieval times, but I would never, I never considered that, like, anything historical, and so I never, like, gauged it on such. Or go completely, you know, historical and try to be as accurate as possible. What bugs me is when someone does n- not all the way on one side, but far enough that you can tell which side they're on and where they're failing. Which for me is the 
example is the the show Vikings, where Vikings seemed, and I only watched the first season, so I can't gauge. I know it has a like a, a bunch of seasons, but I couldn't get into it. And I love Vikings as a historical like perspective. They're one of my favorite cultures, and that show seemed like it was trying to skew closer to actual history but that just made everywhere where it didn't get it stand out like a giant red neon sign like some basic things like their architecture being completely wrong so anyway you get what i'm saying like that it's like an uncanny valley kind of thing yeah and i will circle back to vikings because there are points i want to talk about that show this one i gotta be careful how i phrase this because i don't want to send the wrong message But when I say inclusion of 21st century ideas, what I'm saying is they ignore how racist our ancestors were. Ah, okay. And this really happens in American stories where we tell about the American Revolution or about the Civil War. And that's that's very specifically because, I mean, up until very recently, the idea of addressing the systemic ingrained racism in the founding fathers was just it was just one of those things that there's a, a an unspoken we don't talk about that's not yeah. a good thing and now that we're talking about it, it that is a it is a good thing but just that was a thing you i mean the especially the founding fathers are basically the greek gods to american culture yes, we have deified them yeah they're mythology at this point so and I, and I don't mean that – I don't mean to insult historians or people who are really into especially that period of history, but I just mean that general American culture has mythologized these people. So Yes. Well, historians and history people, I'll include myself in this, we tend or can tend to come off a bit callous in interpretations of events because there's a certain distance you build when you study history – to the point of 10,000 people died as a statistic on this battlefield, but really it should be this big, harsh thing. So it, it's always there in the back of our minds. And I mean, this is a couple things, but the first one I'm going to do is I want to talk about this one does not get ignored by history. People. We're always like when, again, I'll reference the Patriot, which has, which make Mel Gibson is a slave plantation owner, but he's one of the good ones. And that's just a total yikes. But there's also a moment where they talk about, well, you know, if you serve, if these free these slaves serve long enough, then they grant citizenship, and everyone's like, oh, well, I guess it's great to, you know, I guess we fought alongside and we can understand and ignoring that, no, people were just terribly racist, and it's dumb to try and, you know, tiptoe around. Well, let's say that, that one's and a little I, difficult because when you're writing a story, uh, again, this, this comes down to that, like, if you're skewing closer to the history side of things – then yes, I think those kind of addressings are extremely important, especially for context. But when you're skewing more to the story side of things, it's very difficult to – how do I put this? There's a weird thing we do when we enjoy narratives where we talk about like a complex character, right? But there's a limitation. There is always a limitation to how complexly written a entertainment story character can be because they're not an actual person (laughs) so there's a there's an inherent so you have to as a writer you have to choose your places and you're trying to decide you're trying to create an experience in your audience 
And let's say, especially in a culture that has mythologized someone like, let's just use George Washington as it. No, this is a better one. Let's use Thomas Jefferson as an example, because Thomas Jefferson is an extremely complex case where he's a man who <laughs> did own slaves, had children with his slaves, you know, wrote all men are created equal, referred to the slave trade as a uh, what, what is it? He he called it. He had this, oh, he had this great term I think for it. Where it's, I think if you're into the one, it's a blight on uh, human history. Yeah, point is that Jefferson was generally critical of the slave trade, but still profited from it and didn't directly fight it, just criticized it. So he's someone who, you know, for a lot of history was considered to be one of the greatest presidents ever. And arguably you can still make that distinction, but you can't really ignore in a modern context these things about him. So when you're telling a story about him, you choose what to portray but if you're telling a historical story about him it, my, my point is that it, it depends entirely on what you're trying to accomplish right and if we're talking about movies if jefferson is one of your main characters and the movie isn't about his relationship to the nature of freedom which is kind of weird i suppose uh then i could easily see not really addressing it, but I do feel like you'd be cutting yourself short because that makes him a more richly complex character, regardless of uh, my own moral judgments about him, you know? Yeah, and let's put – we'll put that one aside because that's a really tricky one, but it has to be included. The other, the other side of this one, and this is one that, again, I think all historians, or at least is how often – like. The classical era, Roman and Greek are big ones they do. Like that's a big central history focus that do movies on. But what they never really show was the amount of slavery that was involved in that time period. Oh yeah, no, I mean one of the greatest historical uh, things I ever learned that completely upended my understanding of Western like culture is that we are taught as in Western civilization in general about the the Greco-Persian War that it was the you know democratic free Greeks against the slave army Persians but when you actually study that conflict it's almost the exact opposite where Greece and especially Sparta was built on the backs of slaves entirely whereas we were they referred to the Persians as a slave army because King Xerxes uh, had vassal states, so they were quote unquote slave states. But the actual practice of slavery didn't exist in the Persian Empire, so it's completely back asswards that <laughs> in reality from what the, yeah. the general story is. And that's what I mean when I say we want to import this idea of 21st century ideas of slavery is bad, therefore, no one in the ancient world ever practiced slavery. But Rome had such a huge slaving economy that it was cheaper to let your slave die and buy a new one than it was to try and take care of them. I will acknowledge, though, there's a very important thing going on there, too, where slavery in a modern context has an extremely important and undeniable racial element. And I but, get why they do it. But that version of slavery, race-based slavery, is not always what slavery meant in history. Like the Greco-Roman slaves were generally not 
based on race. They were just based on whoever they got conquered and got conquered. Exactly. So, but understanding that nuance is, that's kind of a weird thing to try to convey your movie. Actually, one of the things I thought was good about the Vikings show season one was that kind of illustration that, Hey, we raided you and we captured you. You're our slave. Now doesn't mean we don't have fun with you and feed you and even offer you to have a threesome with us. It just means that you got to do what we tell you to do. So, yeah, and that's it's kind of a weird thing. There's kind of this gentle patina laid over any historical movie of like we're just going to file down the rough edges and make them a little bit nicer. And that's what I mean when I say inclusion for the first century is we want to think they're just like us, but in a different time. When in reality, it's more like no, they're horrible people. And Game of Thrones is much closer to the actual mindset. Well, that's also why the slavery thing, I think, is an important for context because, like, it, it is very – I understand the appeal of the high-minded idea of, like, you know, being against slavery back in those days. But the reality is that the culture and society was so different that a vast majority of people who are, for lack of a better term, extremely progressive today wouldn't have been then because cultural – Culture is just different. The situation is just different. It doesn't make it morally correct because morals are a very complicated idea. But understanding that and being able to contextualize things is important for for these kind of <laughs> stories, you know? Yeah, and that's what I guess I mean is these are not only just big show-offs for history people. It's kind of a way to inform people about the past. And I think if you can divorce people's idealization of the past – they're going to be more acceptable of the ideas of, listen, this is not how it was. All right. Anyway, uh, man, we could spend a lot of time talking about each of these, I feel like, because I have more to say about this. But let's move on. Number eight, there are no tactics used in battles. I want to be very upfront by saying that the second I read that, my brain went, OK, I know movies that use tactics very well. They don't tend to be history movies for some reason. Like – I have pointed out, and Cinefix basically pointed out to me, that the Battle of Helm's Deep is a wonderful example of... Thank you for making my point. ...of portraying tactics in war on screen. Another one that does it very well is the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones. It mm-hmm. does it very differently, but it still does it. So how come fiction and fantasy movies can do it, but... Actual, like when I think about actual historical movies, what tends to come to mind are what is gestalty uh, battle scenes. Which gestalt, for those who don't know, just means like a lot of things happening at once to convey the feeling of motion and even chaos, maybe. So I think about something like like Braveheart, where the ending battle scene is just quick cuts of people getting stabbed. It's it's gestalt. It doesn't yep. convey anything to the audience other than murder is happening so so this one's gonna have to have an addendum because at some point we are going to do an episode on how to film a proper battle sequence uh and axel just mentioned two of my favorite examples to use going here it is let's break these down i mean literally i i'm stealing that from cinefix but i've learned a lot about the 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 words I use to describe cinema from Cinefix, which if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Cinefix on YouTube, any of their stuff, correct that because they're amazing. But yeah, they broke down 
uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Battle of Bastards, and uh, it basically taught me a whole new way to think about like how action sequences, specifically large action sequences, function. Hell, another example that I know Cinefix didn't break down, but I think you could do the same kind of thing to, is the third act of The Avengers. Like, Yes! Again, a, quit stealing my examples! <laughs> so, well, sorry, I, you know, we do think someone alike, so... No, you're listening, this is going to be a whole separate, we're going to go into, we're going to break down, so I'm going to be real quick and blunt about this one. So many historical films, the battles are just grabbing all the action figures together and mashing them together with a bunch of sound and noise and going, oh my god, it's so chaotic, and oh my god, our hero's in danger, and oh, it's so... And you have no idea what happened, you have no idea why it happened, and you weren't really entertained watching it happen. I mean, literally, my my dream, or one of my dreams would be to see the Battle of Kinney portrayed very well on screen. Because, again, for anyone who doesn't know, the Battle of Kinney was a pivotal battle in the Second Punic War, which is wars between Rome and Carthage. If you don't know what Carthage is, this war is the reason you don't know what Carthage is. <laughs> well, Punic <laughs> War, but semantics. But- yeah, yeah, but I, would, I would argue the Second Punic War was basically... I mean, the Third Punic War was, like, dust-up, really. Yeah, it was... Uh- yeah, no, there, but I will say this. There are examples where the tactics are used good and you can see this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened because of this, and you enjoy it. And that will be a whole separate episode. Yeah, so I would say that this one can be summed up with not every historical battle needs to be portrayed with as just chaotic. Because, yes, there are some where I think you can get away with that, and that's to just illustrate that war sucks, right? But... I feel like for movies like Braveheart that I don't feel was trying to make us feel war sucks, I felt like Braveheart was trying to be like, watch these awesome Scottish guys, you know, fight. But if you're going to do that, you should show, I don't know, them being competent at war. See, Braveheart is one of the most cited ones of this is a good movie to watch for historical reasons. And I think it checks almost every box uh, on my list of does this wrong. (laughs) <laughs> exactly that's why I, I keep coming back to it for for that kind of reason but it, it's just that it's a very obvious i know what the braveheart battle is like and it's to me a great example of how not to do a historical battle sequence and, and again there are there are uses for that kind of thing i can think of a few historical battles that i would use that type of editing for essentially yeah. that type of scene for uh Honestly, some uh, Civil War ones, like, you read historical, like, descriptions of how the Civil War was and how a lot of those battles kind of broke down into chaos and the fact that it's a brother against brother is supposed to be, like, a tragedy kind of thing. You could – that's far more appropriate. But anyway, that, that's comes down to personal preference at that point, I suppose. So. Yeah, and again, I'm going to shove this all off in another episode because there is – this is a whole – that's a whole episode on its own. Okay, number seven. The sets suck. Now, that's budget because that some, is not sets, some sets are awesome. So. Budget. Let me clarify. When I say the sets suck, I'm going to reference Vikings. It looks good, but it doesn't fit the time period. Well, that's like I said, uh, the, one of the first things that made me really realize that Vikings was hitting that uncanny valley for me was the architecture. The architecture isn't correct at all. It's heavily, for lack of a better term, Christian. Not that there wasn't a Christian influence on the Vikings by the 11th century, but it should still be more longhousey. 
Like, I think they actually go to Uppsala, and it looks like a straight-up church, and it drove me crazy. Yeah, so. And that's its own thing. I can get not archaeological evidence. But my point is, when the sets do not properly convey the setting, it takes you out of it. And so, so many times, like, think for a second, like, what are some of your most, like, when you think historical movie, think of the set, what is, like, the most iconic sets that come to mind for you? Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, ooh, Ben-Hur is the kind they don't make anymore and that's a great example if it's not historically accurate per se but it's big and it's grandiose and it sells the roman empire yeah but i would say like movies that tend to play take place in the desert tend to pull off these kind of things very well i think in general oddly enough so but ones i like my go-to example of done well is Master and Commander, which is cheating. You know, I was literally just about to say Master and Commander was the, the next one that popped in my head because I have never seen a sailing movie that made the ship feel more real, you know? Yes, but it feels like you were in the setting. But think of how many medieval movies where they just have a big castle and you're like, does it really feel like I'm in a castle or does it feel like I'm standing outside of, you know, an old uh, tourist destination or medieval times? Yeah. No, I totally get what you're saying about that. By the way, it's not on here, but I will say that the whole idea of something that actively takes you out of the story, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Eric Singer. He's a dialect coach. He does dialect videos for uh, Wired on YouTube, I believe. And and he's talked many times about how when it comes to period piece accents, if you don't – it's a lot of times it's a – you need the prep because if you just go in there half cocked, then it's going to be something that really takes someone out of the experience. Like two examples I know of he brings up. I don't know what the movie was, but he showed clips of this movie with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and he just spoke like like a 21st century, you know, dude. Oh, yeah. no. And I was like, one. that's not Teddy Roosevelt at all. <laughs> so. And that kind of circles back to the inclusion of 21st century ideas. Like, every once in a while, they'll slip up and put a word in there that didn't exist at the time. Or uh, another example he gives is um, is, uh, is Dracula, the one with um, Keanu Reeves. Oh, boy. Yeah. I want to be fair up front. I love Keanu Reeves. The man is an amazing human being and a, and a great actor. But the time he made that movie, he not I don't know if he can do accents now, but I know he couldn't do them back then. And so, <laughs> I, yeah. I've never been taken out of the movie so hard by a bad accent. So. Just when I say the set suck, think about the movies where the set and the background, everything made you feel like you were in that time period versus it's just scenery. Uh, Amadeus. So it does that really well. Amadeus is a, Amadeus is a weird. Ah, Amadeus is a weird one. Oh, weird, certainly, but it's about a weird well, person, so... No, I, I say in it, it's weird for it's very divorced from the actual events, but it's also very accurate retelling in I a lot of ways. it's divorced, but in a way that's in service to a more... How do I put this? A really to get an audience to understand this person, even yes. with what is different. So, I don't know, but... Yeah, so sets sets are a tough one, especially because I think period period accurate sets tend to be extremely costy. That's why I said budget right off the bat. So, yes. Also, okay. they tend to be uncomfortable for actors. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, this, this is similar, an easy one. Similar to uh, our number six point, which is the costumes suck. Fits right into with the sets conversation, and for a lot of the same reasons. So, again, I'm going to reference two shows. I'm going to jump to shows real quick because yeah. they're examples, and they're the same ones. 
Last Kingdom on Netflix and Vikings. Listening. Okay. So. So I remember early on in Vikings actually being impressed that the the clothing seemed pretty well done. So. Yes. Vikings, I give credit for in the clothing was more fit, but it's when they had to do other factions. Yeah, like the actual Viking clothing was very good. I did feel like there was something off about like the Britain, but I, I don't know enough about it. So I was I didn't have enough. I couldn't put my finger on it. So and the problem when you get in the Britain and the same thing, Last Kingdom does it is. OK, so our Vikings were going to kind of dress like Vikings. They may or may not. It may be passable. But these Britons are going to have these weird shaped helmets and bright colors, and they're going to look radically different because the layman needs to be able to tell them apart. Even though at this time, the cultures are so similar and everyone kind of looks and dresses the same. Well, it's funny you mentioned helmets because helmets are the great example of we have so many historical artifacts that were ceremonial helmets that you know have these big crazy designs and things sticking out of them that historically that like I just said they're ceremonial and that if you looked at almost any point in history where any two armies went to war against each other their gear would tend to be extremely similar because if they're going to war against each other they're overlapping in space so they're going to be having similar uh, resources and technology doesn't stay in one place for long so when this country figures out hey if we have a helmet that has this you know kind of hinge here then we can cover entirely your head while still letting you swivel your your neck around then the next country next door is going to figure it out pretty soon so yeah and a lot of times they fall into everyone dresses the same everyone from this faction wears this set of clothes with this helmet and this thing and while true it's not this i not everyone look today we all do not dress the same if i get 50 people together there's going to be a pattern but we're also going to be different it was the same historically speaking up until the advent of the formal uniform yeah which uh when would you say that is like i mean that's different for different uh, cultures obviously but what do you think was one of the earliest ones well the romans are the earliest ones you think the romans were that oh yeah i mean the roman oh, the romans were but the Roman Legion, the Spartan, like a lot of there's a lot of ancient cultures did the uniform uniformity, but more when I say so uniformity, I I'm guess. talking the Napoleonic era in like the 1700s when they're literally everyone where if you're from this country, this is what you wear, this is how you're equipped, this is how we know well, you especially are. Especially because by that point, you know, when you had guns, it kind of changed when the nature of things a lot. So well, and industrialization made it so that you could produce lots of things the same quality could be reproduced repeatedly but no nothing pulls me out of a historic movie like bad costuming and i say bad costume i'm gonna go back to braveheart and i know everyone likes to go well they were wearing kilts before kilts were invented half what they're wearing isn't technically a kilt but not everyone should be dressed like that number five changes to the events so this comes down to what we talked about before about adapting a story and you make large changes to what actually happened. And I'm not going to say that this – I personally disagree with this one's placement here because changes to events in a historical movie don't necessarily, I think, contribute to the movie being bad. It might contribute to it to being a bad history movie. But those are different different questions. It depends on the degree of change. If you're moving a date or a person who was there – that's one thing. If you are inventing somebody whole cloth and having them have an own parallel storyline, 
that totally goes against everything that happened, or you change a person's motivations, or you do a total 360 of the King of England did this because he was mad at his brother named this, is a vast change from the King of England's wife had a dream that told him to go to war. You see what I mean? Yeah, but I would argue that literally the, if not the first, one of the first great historical adaptations ever, Julius or Caesar by Shakespeare, is an example of that. <laughs> yeah, but Shakespeare isn't history. Shakespeare is literature. No, but I'm just saying that it was a adaptation of a historical series of events. So. I know, but the problem this kind of comes back to is the main idea or point behind these movies should be nothing else to inform an interest. And if you are making radical changes to the events, then you are just, it kind of goes back to the ignoring slavery or just, you know, outright well, lying to your audience. Though. You touched on something, because I, I don't agree I, that the main point is to inform interest. I feel that that's a great point, but, and that there are some movies where that is the main point to inform an interest. But I feel like largely when it comes to film, right, the main point is to entertain and sadly enough in a capitalist society to make money. So they're going to do whatever necessitates that. Now, personally, I feel like taking stories that and from history and radically altering them in order to meet that ends when there are other stories you could be choosing that don't need to be radically altered is kind of stupid, but there's things like name recognition and, you know, familiarity that they're trying to, you know, work within. So I'm saying I get that. So it's a sliding scale of, okay, this is kind of annoying to you totally omitted somebody and their importance to this, or you changed how this war ended or why this war ended or you just you totally ignored the facts enough. It's you're creating you've taken a actual event and gone. I don't like how that ends. Here's my ending. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mentioned the whole Greco-Persian thing earlier, and that's a great example. I mean, that at least in modern culture, the movie everyone's going to think of is 300 because it was, you know, the most recent like big one of that, and it changes because it, it was based on a comic, right? It yes. wasn't based on history. It just happened to. It happened to be an extremely fictionalized telling of a historical thing, but uh, actually they did a lot right. Uh, but they did a lot wrong. <laughs> Visually, yes. In terms of events and quotes, it's there. Yeah, but as I mentioned earlier, they also completely flipped the nature of the Persian and Spartan armies. They Basically, True. it's also an inclusion of 21st century ideas by turning Sparta into what seems to be a idealized version of the libertarian state. Uh, it, yeah, that warrior corner is going to be interesting to redo. Yeah, so there's there's a lot there that really bothers me. That's examples of inclusion of 21st century ideas and changing the events. So I'm, you know, but whereas another example, let's see. Something that would be like a real big change to events that works might be something like I, – I really like Troy. I know that it gets some flack, but I think it's a really fun movie, and the Trojan War is such an odd 
thing in history because we're like, from what I can tell, we are reasonably certain it happened, but that beyond essentially the uh, you know the preamble to the Odyssey, the nature of what happened is large, left largely up to historical interpretation. So you're kind of left with a you know fill in your own gaps kind of situation, you know? Yeah, no, Troy, that's its own side issue, but. I'm going to move on so we don't get bogged down on this one forever. And we're going to do another one that's really kind of easy to cover quickly. Battles aren't filmed well. This really just comes down to, we, we've talked about this before, the, the in the tactics one. We literally already talked about all this, I think. <laughs> yeah, this is just kind of, again, with if you're whipping your camera about, if you don't have big panning shots to establish what's going on, if I can't decipher who's who, if it's just not exciting, if I... I'm not engaged in what's happening, and lots of most of them are shot poorly. My go-to example, while not historical, is the Hobbit, the Battle of the Five Armies, and that big climactic bash. You have no idea what the hell is happening. That's why, like I mentioned, the Battle of Cannae, and for anyone who doesn't know, the reason why the Battle of Cannae is so interesting is because, without going into super detail, Carthage, which was being uh, generaled by Hannibal Barca, he had he was outnumbered. He was outnumbered about 80,000 to 50,000, which that level of disparity in an ancient war was – you were screwed essentially. So there was like very little that any any other general could do. But Hannibal Barca knew that Roman – the Roman legions, are, generally they fought in a square formation. They're, they're phalanxes essentially. And so what he did was he took his army, which was – composed of a lot of mercenaries he had a lot of cavalry he had some elephants because this was a really cool war and he create he positioned it into a reverse crescent so think like a waning moon where the points of the moon are pointing away from the enemy so the the curve of the moon the crescent was pointing towards the enemy he put all his cavalry on the back sides where the point is and he put his weakest soldiers in the middle like it's just pure infantry but he also put himself and his like his elephant in the middle to bolster their uh their morale but still present a very appealing target to the enemy so of course rome saw that when if we bust right through the middle we'll split their entire army and then we'll be able to just rout them so they came right into the middle and pushed right in but instead of breaking through Hannibal had the, the the curve of the crescent start pulling back while the points of the crescent stayed where they were and in fact started coming forward to the point where eventually the crescent completely inverted and then closed around the square-formed Roman army. It was the first time in recorded history that a larger force was encircled by a smaller force. And the result was one of the most brutal victories in military history especially up to that point like back then if you lost like 20 percent of your forces that was a bad loss like soldiers are a resource you can't afford to lose a lot of them but of the 80,000 romans that began the battle of Cannae, only something like 3,000 managed to escape point is of telling you all this if you make a movie about that and you don't make it clear that the crescent shape and the inversion is – and that tactic is what allows Hannibal to win what should have been a brutal loss. 
then you are doing a major disservice to what makes that battle interesting, fascinating, and important. And it's not fun to watch. That's my point. The reason they do big epic battles is it's it taps into our primal ooh that we enjoy watching these big, big smack ups. And if you can't tell what's going on, then it just makes it this big mess. Yeah. yeah I don't like Gestalt. I already talked about this. Uh, number three trying to cover huge events and this comes back down to when you're adapting you have to make cuts and especially when you're adapting something that's an epic and a lot of times as orcs mentioned time has to be condensed because a lot of things in history happen over a very long period of time so you have to yep you have to summarize and you have to condense so and what i mean and i kind of goes back to pacing but my dream would be that they announce tomorrow they're making a Hannibal movie. The tagline is The Man Who Challenged an Empire, starring Idris Elba. Idris Elba as Hannibal Barca? I'd watch yes. that. Oh, yeah, I'd watch that. That 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 is my dream. But I would be pissed if they said, and we're going to cover the first Punic War through the third Punic War. I'd be like, no, 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 no. You, you, no. Just have it end at the Battle of Cani. Do not try and cover his downfall in the third Punic War because you can't get it all in there. And so much yeah, of the time plus, they go, we're only going to get one shot at this. Plus Scipio, the general yes. who was Hannibal's fall, deserves his own movie. So, Well, which Scipio? There's three of them. Uh, any of them, but primarily the second one. So. Yeah. But that's what I mean, is that they want to do these big events. Like, there are plenty of small, little, tiny things you could do. But they want to go for these big grand epics, okay? But they don't want to do a big grand epic. They want to do one movie, and it's like I would do. I would, man, give me a trilogy on the Punic on the first, second, and third Punic Wars. I would be in love. It's never going to happen, but I would love that. You know, you know what I would love that would be adjacent to all that. It would make a really good drama piece. I think that would be very tricky to do. I'd like to see a, a piece about uh, about Fabius because. For anyone who doesn't know, the term Fabian tactics comes from a Roman consul during the Second Punic War who was extremely unpopular, but probably was the reason why Rome didn't fall to Hannibal. <laughs> because his tactics involved never engaging Hannibal in direct battle, constantly making sure he had soldiers at, at advantageous ground to Hannibal – but just letting Hannibal go where he wanted, but always just keeping him hounded. And Rome hated it because he was like, you're, they were like, you're just letting Hannibal go. But it's, but it's because Fabian did this that, you know, because yeah, anytime any other general tried to fight Hannibal in combat straight on, Hannibal destroyed them. So Fabian was instead like, no, I'm just going to slowly whittle him down and whittle down his resources. And I'd be interested in a movie that just follows Fabian and all the pressure he's getting from Rome and knowing you know he's the one who in doing the right thing and and just I feel like there'd be a great like no no even battle necessary but just Fabian fighting the Roman Senate you know. <laughs> now if you're listening to this and going wow they sure are referencing this Punic War a lot go check out a buckler we did titled Why We Love Hannibal we go into all the gooey details of why we keep coming back to the Punic Wars. Yeah I'll admit I did not know about the Punic War until extra credits taught me about it but then I looked up a bunch of other people about things about it too and the second Punic War specifically is awesome. <laughs> yep. Anyway, but yeah, the, trying to cover I feel like we can get away with this a bit more nowadays too with uh I mean, we talked about Vikings a few times and Vikings is covering an extremely long period of time but it's a show. 
so we can get away with that. I mean, the fact that Ragnar Lothbrok was not that much of a big figure in history. His sons are, but he wasn't. But now his name is almost household because of the yep. show. And that's kind of a good thing, and I will acknowledge. And so as a show, you can you can get away with something like that. So, you know, maybe that's something good to keep in mind. <laughs> anyway, so number two, and this one is a big one, I think, which is that, again, we're in the Western world. We're talking primarily about Hollywood. And because of that, the movies that we are most familiar with tend to be extremely Eurocentric. And that can stem directly from the fact that we live in an extremely Eurocentric culture here in the West. I had to think about this to make sure I wasn't crazy. And I started thinking like, okay, well, what are the big, you know, historical pieces I know where they typically say World War II, Rome, ancient Greece, American Revolution, Civil War. Let, let, let me put it this way. China and India have two of the most complex and fascinating and dynamic and crazy histories of any country on the planet, of any region on the planet, separately. And I only know the barest bit about them. Like, you know how many times China has, like, broken down into <laughs> dynamic, like, warring kind of states only to reforge under a new, like, dynasty. Like, and every single one of those is probably fit for its own movie. Like, so many times in, in China's history. And India, for being such a small country, like, size-wise, is because it's split into so many different cultures throughout its entire history is I can like, I know the barest minimum about Indian history, but just what I already know is Dude, like the Mughal empire. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. The stories you could tell there. And the fact that we only have one movie about the Zulu. I say Zulu. Everyone knows who I'm talking about, but the only battle we cover is the Battle of Rorik's Drift where they died, not the Battle of Itzhidwana where they whooped the British's ass in huge, which would be amazing to see, because there were thousands of them, and they were horribly outgunned, and they still won. Yeah, so I would definitely say that the the older I got, the more I started learning about non-Western history, and, and it is a that's why that's why I always go back to the Admiral Yi because Admiral Yi's story is insane. Example. Yeah, I mean, the guy, when you read just the surface level of the guy's history, like, the number of times his own government fucked him over only to come crawl and be like, save us from the Japanese. And then he would do it because he loved his country, even though the, the government kept screwing him over. It's like, Admiral Yi is a goddamn Sisyphean hero when you read his story. <laughs> so. And I'm not saying I'm not interested in stories about Rome, about the Middle Ages, but... When you consider how many movies we have done on Spartacus and World War II and Battles of World War II and just generic Roman Empire stuff. And you look at these like, okay, but look at all these other stories there are to tell. The rise of the Muslim Empire in the East. Pick one. Uh, is a fascinating story Suleiman of a have, Suleiman should have a slew of movies with how important yes. it is in history. So. There are just – there's so many other interesting little story beats that we just kind of keep repeating the same ones. You know what's even weird about that? Even even the Eurocentric 
centrism still applies in weird places. Like, how come we don't have any good Justinian movies? Like, that's the Holy Roman Empire, but not really because it was not holy, not Roman, and non-empire. But <laughs> a phrase I stole from Crash Course. But still, Justinian was a huge deal. I don't know any movies about him. <laughs> and it is weird. And when I mean, it gets even weirder when you look at Eastern European and Russian history. Talk about a treasure trove of fun ideas to go play with that we don't touch. Yeah, Russia. I totally understand, though, why we don't have movies about Russian history in general. Only because uh, as long as film has been a medium, Russia has been a tense subject in general. <laughs> we don't have to do Russia. We can do Poland. They have a fascinating history. I will Lithuania. say, though, I will say, though, while I recognize the importance of Dr. Zhivago as a book, (laughs) I fucking hate it. Pardon my French, but how a book and its various adaptations can turn the Russian Civil War and the rise of the the Bolsheviks, but how it can take that bloody revolution and make it the most boring goddamn thing I've ever read. Anyway, sorry. I had to read that for college, and I hated it. (laughs) Catherine the Great. Catherine's awesome. And needs movies because Catherine was a boss. <laughs> yes. No. There's there's so many great stories that we're just not getting, and ultimately it makes the ones we are getting feel very repetitive. Like, oh, we're doing Normandy again. Cool. I get it. I love it. We have Saving Private Ryan. How about we do something different? That one's a little. I think also the fact that we have people alive still who were at Normandy. So yeah. That's probably why that gets like. A better a better example would be like that we still get you know civil war and revolutionary war movies. Then again, I feel like civil war movies are more important than ever right now. So I don't anyway, we need more revolutionary war movies. We don't have many good ones. But anyways, let's wrap it up with number one. History is rarely black and white, and you know what? I talked about. I feel like we've touched on this with so many things we've been talking about. The idea of nuance and history is not a story in reality. It's something that we can make stories from. The fact that historians have a what, what is it? History is written by the victors, yes. but but there's also the fact that when history is is written by the losers, they tend to be really spiteful about it. So okay, here's the problem, and it is one that all historians are guilty of. And it's, we get attached to these people that we're reading about, mm-hmm. and we want to shape them and like, okay, I'm going to shave off this. I'm not going to talk about this. I like this. This is my friend. I've been reading about him. I want him to be good. And this guy over here who fought him, he was a real dickhead. He ate babies. Yeah. I mean, again, the, the Greco-Persian War to me is for example of this since Western culture has vilified the Persian Empire. But the more I studied it, the more I'm like – they had religious tolerance. They were basically like really hands off with their empire and let See, cities basically function the way they wanted to. Now you're flipping to the reverse though. In you're you're trying to sand off their edges because it's like, well, these guys have been too sanded. I'm going to sand down these guys. When basically it's the same then as it is now. People are dicks. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that the Persian Empire didn't have problems. They did have a thing where basically if you didn't pay your tithe, they they had an army for a reason. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just saying that like that nature of being biased, uh, especially for the people who are more resembling of who you are, is a predominant issue in well any field really, but especially in something like history and historical. And it's a storytelling thing. You need a villain, and people love it 
when it's a mustache twirling evil villain, when it, instead it's just, you know, no, he was just, he wanted more land because his king wanted more land and he didn't want to give up his land because it was his. There wasn't any real big moral conflicts between the two. It's just like, no, they're just two dudes going at it. I will I say mean, there is one giant glaring exception. Well, there's and, a couple glaring exceptions, but... Yeah, but there's, a, there's the giant one, which is World War II is very easily put into black and white categories. Now, again, from a historical perspective, there actually is a lot going on in World War II that is probably overlooked. But there's also a lot going on there that means you don't really have to... How do, how do I put this? There's no grayifying the Holocaust. Nope. It happened. It is pure black and white evil, and I will not be swayed on no, that. But that I'm is not going to defend that one in the slightest. Yeah, but that is my point is that that is the exception. Most of history doesn't function like that. <laughs> well, even then, you got the gulags, and you've got there's a lot of ugliness and it's not long enough ago for it not to be just horrendous but anyways not gonna have that conversation well actually one thing i'll say about that what's what's one aspect of of uh world war ii that you almost never in fact i don't think i've ever seen portrayed in film which is the american japanese internment camps yep no they happened I, I was at least taught them basically in my AP history class, but I feel like it's because you know we we read like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, for instance. But that is uh, because because World War II is so easily put into a black and white. The Nazis are evil, thus the Allies are good. It does ignore that thing that okay, but America was doing this really evil thing at home <laughs> while this was happening. There were standing orders to ignore concentration camps. And honestly, the more you start digging into that one, it gets really grim really fast. But it is held up by you don't get worse than Nazis. That that that's like the bottom. It's we're working under the were you Nazis? No, okay then you're better than the enemy because yeah. you weren't Nazis. It's flex. I feel like I just convinced myself the opposite of what I started with though, because while yes, Nazis are evil, the Holocaust is the 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 black and white evil. The the gray area is the allies because yes they are the good for fighting the bad but that doesn't mean that they weren't themselves problematic for other reasons <laughs> but that's history everyone is an asshole if you are going and invading someone else's country and fucking up their shit that doesn't make you good by virtue of well i'm stopping them from doing it you're still over there fucking up someone's shit and we because narratives we want to you know this guy's the noble hero this guy's the evil bad guy let's make them fight Again, I'm going to end on Braveheart because William Wallace is, you know, this nice, friendly, loving, poetic guy. And King Edward I is this evil, nasty arsehole. And he was. He was a real piece of shit. But you know what? William Wallace was probably a bit of a dick, too. I don't know enough about William Wallace to comment on that. Nobody but... does. <laughs> That's kind of the problem. There's not a lot written about him. But I know from the time, he probably was a dick. But you know what? He wasn't as big a dick. And I guess it worked. <laughs> comes down to savior we kind of we write savior narratives like we do with our founding fathers we're like these guys are our founding fathers and we're going to build them up and put them on pedestals and we're going to take the king of england and all the english like just think of how the english were presented in any revolutionary movie they're out there you know shooting babies and burning down villages while the brave american patriots are you know greeting mightily and most of them were drunk in conscripts i have a question yes I 
a movie popped in my head that I've only watched once, and admittedly I watched about 10 years ago, so I don't know how well it holds up. But my memories were that it was good, it felt real, and it felt like it was different than – like it felt like it was a great – sorry, Hotel Rwanda. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Because I feel like that's a great example that does most of the stuff on this list the right way, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Like, no, it's first a of all, it's a, non, it's a non-Eurocentric. It's literally about an internal thing that happened in Africa with good actors doing seemingly period-accurate outfits and speech patterns about an event that I was not taught in school at all, so it taught me something. And it... I guess the only thing it could be is it kind of feels a little black and white, but that's because it's literally from the perspective of the victims, which is – it's kind of hard to get away from that. So, If you want a good movie – and this, again, this will play to our wheelhouse, but kind of covers all of these points. Go watch anything from the Irish Film Board about either the Irish Revolution or the Troubles because that – I'll say When the Shakes the Barley is a real good example – of yeah these people over here the occupying forces were dicks they did a lot of terrible things but the irish freedom fighters also kind of got warped to that in the end it's very honest about the history in a way that you're not going to see a lot of other places tell you one thing it's uh it's a crime that we don't have any big movies about the finians and their attempts to (laughs) to take over canada and australia because that's shit is hilarious so yeah, no, maybe that's another thing we could have included, that history is too rooted in making movies about war, and we don't have any historical comedies. Yeah, because there's a lot of goofy historical stuff, and it, it, again, if you don't listen to the dollop, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but the Finians were Irish people, primarily in uh, New York and America, who were fighting for Irish independence, and at one point, their plan to win Irish independence was to take over Canada. <laughs> Yeah, I know. My favorite fun little bit about Irish history I love to throw out is the reason the Easter Uprising failed was because there was a disagreement on what day it should be. A whole revolution failed because they're like, no, no, I say it should be on this day. Well, I say you're wrong. Well, fine. Fuck you. I'm not going to show up that day. All right. Well, literally what happened. I, I, I think I got to think more about it's funny. You say, I think I'd have some more like things ready for historical comedies. But I think with historical comedies, it's because you should take less quote-unquote important things and historic i mean literally the revenant was an oscar-winning leonardo dicaprio film about the life of one guy hugh glass who was a real person so give me that treatment but for iron mike malloy the guy who was poisoned every day for a week and didn't die (laughs) we made that an honorary number 11 stop trying to make them big grandiose projects do small projects yeah I think and that you know solves what? a lot of the issues here. I think that's a good point to, to stop, too, because we've been talking for a while, and I know we could easily continue this because we both are we both are fans of history, and I and we're both fans of movies. We're going to do so, the Dan Carlin there. I like that. The Dan Carlin? <laughs> the Dan Carlin. I'm not a historian. I'm a fan of history. Yep. All right. So if, if you want – if you're listening to this and you want to talk more about historical complaints or movies that we like and or don't like that are historical-based – Tell us. I'm sure we can easily find a structure to do it. <laughs> you know, we may have to do a part two. I don't know if I can think of ten more. I might be able to get five more. 
Maybe we'll get a guest. We'll get we we got history guests we can you know bring in. Like, all right, you, what are your ten complaints? I would love to get like a big history content creator. Like again, not even necessarily a historian, although getting a historian would be awesome too. To like ask these kind of questions too, and to get their pick their brain on. But we do know an archaeologist. That's related, but I'm not touching that. So <laughs> don't anyway. piss off our archaeologist. Yeah, let's. Let's move on to since this is a normal episode. I know it's been a long time since we recorded like a normal episode of Geeks with Shields, but we have our suggestions of the week. And fortunately, this week we have the same suggestion because we both want to be like, fucking watch this. I, I don't think we need to say that because I feel like everyone's watching Invincible and it's awesome and I love it and it's such a breath of fresh, breath of fresh air. Yeah, and if for some reason you haven't watched it, or maybe you've seen all the memes and you're like, oh, it's been spoiled for me, or oh, it's oversaturated, overhyped, fucking shut that voice up. It's good. It is so good. Go Like, I'm sitting here like, I didn't like The Boys, because I thought the, it was over-serious, and, and I thought it was too, like, edgy for edgy's own sake, and so I didn't think I was going to like Invincible, and I fucking love Invincible. I'm cursing too much, but, like, I can't convey how good... It is. I think part of it is because the original comic artist worked on the show, and he actually made change. He made changes to it to better suit his having been experienced now, and basically correct what a lot of the people who read the comics saw as flaws with the original comics. To the point where most people who have read the comics and seen the show think the show is better. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the general takeaway. Uh, real quick, if you need a plot synopsis it's about this guy named mark his dad is a superhero basically superman specifically he discovers yes he's been he discovers that he comes into his powers and his whole journey of balancing his newfound life with superpowers is in this very broad satire isn't the right word homage yeah now to here's marvel here's the DC, dark horse here's the key thing about it so the the superman character his name is omni man and he's voiced by J.K. Simmons, who is at this point is in my like top three actors ever. J.K. Simmons is so good. I didn't realize how many J.K. Simmons roles are like of my favorite roles until this, but he's been in a lot of stuff I like actually. So, but yeah, Omni Man. In and I'm if you've been on the internet, you've probably already had the spoiler for you. But this is the end of episode one, and it's the main reason to give the show a watch. So I don't yes, feel watch bad. the first episode. Yeah. I don't want you to spoil it because I think that first, if you haven't seen it, that first episode drop is such a gut punch that drags you through to the rest. Because when I watched this, the Sigathor, she was kind of 50-50. She wasn't really into it. And then the big end drop happened and she went, oh, okay, let's keep watching this. Yeah, so because I, okay. she wanted to know I won't say exactly off. what happens, but I will illustrate that if you start watching this first episode and you're like, this seems, for lack of a term, conventional. Well done, well animated, pretty earnest, kind of like a Spider-Man-y kind of vibe, but still pretty normal. That is intentional. And the end by the end of episode one, the Invincible will show you its hand and will be like, here is why you're going to stick around for seven more episodes. So trust us on this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love this show and we will talk about it more in length, spoilers wise, at a later date. All right. I, I believe that covers it then. <laughs> Yep. So thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do whatever it is that the algorithm platform you're on asks you to do. 
and share it because that is how podcasts live and die. If you do not share this, we cannot grow. If we cannot grow, then eventually we wither up and die and just end up shouting about the failed Hannibal movie 10 years from now. And whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, whether that be SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, thank you, first of all. And second of all, tell us if there's another platform you'd rather us be on. It, we've had a couple sporadic recommendations, but no one, you know, we really want you on this one. So anyway, just let us know. <laughs> As always, this has been Lord Commander Auric. Shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always... Stay honorable.